0: this is Nishil Dua and welcome to the Remote Work Summit. On the panel now, we have Lisa Taylor, the founder and president of Challenge Factory. She's here to talk about the future of work. Welcome to the summit, Lisa.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Likewise, Lisa. I think uh, I loved your thoughts everywhere that I read about them and I feel that there's so much insights that you can share with us today, but let's just start with a quick background. If you could just tell us a bit more about Challenge Factory and what is it that you guys do? Sure.
1: So, Challenge Factory is a research and consulting-based organization. We're based in Toronto, Canada. We help organizations have the same level of clarity on what's happening in the people side of their business as they have with their technology roadmaps and plans as we navigate into the future of work. And we do that by helping organizations shape the future of work that they want to be part of as opposed to preparing for some inevitable future of work someone else has predetermined.
0: Interesting. So let's just attack this problem head on. What is the future of work? What do you think about it? Where do you think we are going uh, in the near short term and, and the longer term as well?
1: I think it's a good question. And I think it's really complicated. When we talk about the future of work, it's, you know, one of the things that we always say is that it's really important for us to even be clear about what is it that we're talking about. So often when you attend things that are called future of work, Uh, it ends up being a discussion about technology. And what we need to be really distinctful of is, are we talking about the future of technology at work, or are we talking about the future of work? Because work is actually a human effort. Um, You can't take humanity out of it. And it's not that humans don't use technology in their work, and that more and more we're going to be integrating with AI and machine learning and all of the technologies. But if we're actually going to have an honest conversation about the future of work, we need to be focusing on what does this mean for humans in the workplace.
0: I I really like that distinction that you just made here because, and I'll be honest about this, I've been guilty of doing the same. Every time someone talks about the future of work, we often stress a lot upon how the processes are going to change, how the tools are going to change, what kind of technologies will come into play and how AI and automation will take away some of the jobs. That's what we talk about when it comes to future of work. But you're essentially saying that The future of work is about the people who are doing the work in in the first place. So uh, I've read something about the national conversation. What is that about? Tell us a bit about the national conversation that we have around the future of work.
1: Yeah, sure. So a couple of years ago, we started a national conversation on the future of work. And uh, that was in Canada. That's the nation. That's the national conversation. It's grown since then. It actually happened as a three-day rapid research project. So as part of an industry gathering, they had more than a 1,000 participants. We wanted to ask those 1,000 participants, what did they think about the future of work? We used a really specific question set in order to accomplish that goal, uh, and we were able to create some pretty creative visuals that came out of that, where we got a very good sense of... What do frontline workers in a particular industry actually think is going to happen? What are they worried about? What do they hope might happen? And how do we bridge between the fears that they expressed and the hopes that they expressed into understanding what fundamentally do we want to maintain as core values so that that industry shapes the future they're looking for, as opposed to falling victim to the things that they're afraid of?
0: Interesting, and and what are those key aspects that people are looking at? What are those key drivers or stakeholders or pillars that that need to be talked about or discussed or planned for?
1: Yeah, so as part of the conversation, maybe I'll share a, a slide with you and with the audience just as we're going through and talking about this. But really, as part of the um, as part of the discussion, what we've come to recognize is that if we're going to understand the future of work. It's really broken down into five drivers that shape the future. And it's important in every conversation that we know, not just as one bucket, let's talk about the future of work, but what actually is it that we're talking about and what's shaping or driving that particular trend, statistic, element, problem, issue, so that we know how we can break it down and actually start to shape a future that we want to be part of. So the five drivers are demographics and longevity, career ownership, that relationship between employer and employee and who owns the career of the individual, who's in charge of that, the freelance or gig economy and the impact that that is having on the future of work, platform-based environments like Zoom, like Amazon, like Airbnb, but... Platforms in the broadest sense where every industry, company, and organization has an opportunity to leverage platforms, both technological and human. And then AI, robotics, all of the technology we put as the last driver, because as we started on the call, it's not so much to understand all of the different technologies that are coming, but what's the human impact of those technologies. And so for every topic, if we take remote work, for example, and we use these five drivers as a comprehensiveness test, we can get to richer conversations if we use remote work and we run them through the five drivers. So from, remote work pers- from a remote work perspective, how are different demographics experiencing remote work? And what are the demographic groups we need to be paying more attention to? Who's winning and who's being left behind? How does that add to our understanding of the topic? And then longevity says people are living and working longer. So in the demographic slice, let's not also forget that we need to include people right from potentially, you know, when they enter school, all the way through till when they're in their 80s and 90s. It's not the typical work life that we've had in mind for the last number of uh, decades. That's what my third book is about, The Talent Revolution, Longevity and the Future of Work. So what's a demographic lens? What does that bring to the conversation? If we're looking at remote work, what does looking at it from the lens of career ownership bring? How do we better understand remote work and the relationship between employer and employee? Who owns that? Who's in charge of that? Who navigates that? The freelance economy is the next lens, right? If everyone is working more remotely, What does that do to the freelance economy? Does it help it grow? Does it help it shrink? What happens? What policy do we need? The same for platform-based environments and AI and robotics. You can see how if we were to take a slice of the topic, but look at it through each of these lenses, our understanding of how a topic like remote work contributes into the future of work becomes richer and more robust, and we can have better conversations than just generalized technology talk. And if I just show you one other way to look at those five drivers, what you can see is there is a technological revolution that is absolutely happening. Technology is evolving and changing and it is important. I had a 12 year technology career. I love technology. But there is also a talent revolution that is taking place at the same time. The way that we are working, the human aspect of work is also changing. And that's changing First, at the demographics and longevity side, and then how we're understanding career ownership and our own relationship to our employers. And then, as we look at the freelance economy, we're moving through the five drivers from left to right. And if we look at where advancements are happening from a technology perspective, there the technology is moving through those same five drivers, but from right to left. And so what we focus on depends on whether we're looking at it from a human lens immediately now or in the future, from a technology lens immediately now or in the future. So hopefully that helps to shape a little bit of the conversation about how Challenge Factory thinks about the future of work and why a national conversation with all of the views is
0: so important. Interesting. So, this is a really interesting framework, uh, a really interesting way to actually think about the problem and break it down into smaller pillars and drivers, like you said. And uh, you're saying the remote work is, let's just say, an underlying layer or something that cuts across all of these five drivers and five pillars. So, how does that really work? What are some of the insights that you can probably share with us on how remote work is a subset of these uh, five key drivers and where it sits? in each of these pillars, if, if that's even a relevant question.
1: Sure. So just quickly, because we could use a whole day just understanding the five drivers and, and what the implications are on remote work. Uh, but if we take a look at it and we go a little bit deeper. So if we take a look at demographics and longevity, there's some very practical things about demographics that remote work, remote work can be looked at from a, an industry segment, which industry and demographic, uh, you know, demographic groups tend to be in different types of jobs and roles. And are those jobs and roles more or less likely to be suited for remote work? So, for example, frontline service delivery work in healthcare, in education, in social service tend not to be jobs that are done in significant ways today remotely. They tend to be very face-to-face. They also tend to have, at least in North America, a gender bias to them. So is there a a difference when we take a look from that demographic lens? Is there a difference in demographics and in adoption rates when we look at different um, ages of workers and, uh, and use of technology? Although not necessarily in the way that you would think because most of the technology that is being built today that we're leveraging and using was conceived of and built by boomers and the older Gen X cohorts. So it's not to say that there's a technological capability by age. But there is certainly a technological um, adoption rate by by age, by level of education, by uh, whether you're living in a rural or an urban environment, what access to technology you have, what did your parents, uh, what was your parents' level of education. So there's a demographic layer to understanding the nuances of, if we want to move forward with ubiquitous remote work, what do we need to understand? and who's gonna be left behind, and how can we make sure that everyone thrives in a remote work environment, as opposed to saying, well, that's just never gonna happen or never gonna work. We're living through a time right now, this is being recorded right in the midst of the pandemic and quarantine, where everyone's having to figure this out, and some are, e- are having an easier time doing it than others. I think that's what the demographics really points to. I'll just pick on one other, if that's okay, the other one that we may want to take a look at is the career ownership, um, the career ownership lens. So career ownership comes out of the field of career development. It's the lifelong pursuit of where individuals and understand how to best connect it to the labor market. And so if in the past employers provided career paths, they basically said to uh, employees, You can be in charge of your own career, and here's the three paths in our company that this can follow. That's not actually giving ownership to the employee. Today, that's flipped on its head, and employees actually have control over their own career. So as a remote worker, what skills do you need to have to actually take ownership of your own career and still develop the relationship that you want to have with your employer so you have a fruitful, productive, and successful career, even in a remote setting. So there's work to be done on both the employee side of how do you manage that manager relationship and on the manager side, how do you manage your employees when you never see them face-to-face? That falls under the bucket of understanding career ownership and, again, taking a lens on who's going to struggle with that and what do we need to be thinking about so that it's not seen as someone or a sector or an industry being resistant to remote work, what's the underlying need that's not being met that that manager needs to have answers for so that they can be more open to more remote work? So that's just two examples of how we could go deeper into each of the different five drivers to have really robust conversations that get to good strategy. For advancing remote work around the world.
0: Absolutely. Uh, also, just just on a side note here, I feel that there are, of course, and you know, uh, not just a feeling, but probably proven by facts as well. There are inherent biases to how our organizations are structured today, how the entire work environment is structured. And, you know, biases like uh, on the lines of gender, and biases on other fronts, like you said, about ownership as well, on how much autonomy are is actually given out to people as well. Do you think remote work could one of those? could actually be a big leveler in the case that it actually takes away a lot of those inherent biases from us? Or is that just going to be more enhanced in the virtual environment? Because there are, of course, pros and cons to it. So where do you think it's going to go?
1: Yeah. So I think that's a really good question and I'm not sure I have the definitive answer, but what I would say is where there is bias now in the systems, uh, what we need to be a little bit careful of is that we don't just replicate those biases, but in a remote sense. And I think that, you know, one way that I can give a clear example about that is in this moment in time, during this crisis, I don't think we should use this as the proof test of anything related to remote work, remote learning, remote education, remote anything. I think that we've been forced into a situation of being remote, and I think people have responded really well. But has it been done in a way that is thoughtful and strategic, that advances and shapes a future where remote elevates everybody's work? No, we didn't have time for that. And that's okay. I think the danger is that we take this as a proof test that says, you see, we should just continue as we have been, because all that we've done is we've taken the same biases and the same views that we have about work, and we've, we've moved it so that everyone just works from home that's not strategic remote work. That's emergency remote work. And I think the answer to your question is in how much energy and effort goes into actually being strategic about remote work in the future and using it to unlock capacity as opposed to responding to crisis.
0: I I love that thought, Lisa, simply because everywhere I look these days, everyone's talking about how this emergency remote work situation is actually forcing us uh, to work from home and it's, it's, it's going to end up becoming a proof of who can work remotely, whether work, remote work can happen or not. But like you said, it's not really a proof. It's just a mock. It's just an experiment. It's just a way to test what really happens. But it's not really a proof of whether it works or doesn't work for a particular company, team or an individual. This is just a process we have to get through. And then it will give us the, the kind of insights that we need to actually strategically plan on uh, for a broader Uh, conversion towards remote work. So really excited about what's going to happen there as well.
1: There's lots that we can learn in this period. It's not that this isn't valuable time to learn, uh, but we shouldn't necessarily use this as the model for plans going forward. And I think the reason I think that's so important is I think leaders have a lot of pressure on them, you know, especially if they haven't worked remotely before and this is a reversal of policy. Well, am I now setting out policy forever into the future? Um, and I think that people should be thoughtful about what do they learn in this process, what makes them better, and take their time to figure out, so what do we want the future policy to be? That's all about shaping the future of work, not responding to situations as they come up.
0: Absolutely, and now all of us are going to have something to talk about. We will have something to contribute to the entire conversation. For a lot of us who didn't actually have the uh, experience of working remotely or working from earlier, now they're going to have some sort of thoughts and inputs to give to the entire conversation. So Interesting. And uh, I I did read about uh, something on the lines of a conversation guide on future of work. Can you tell us a bit more about what that really is about?
1: Sure. So when we were doing that experiment with the industry association, we, as I mentioned, went through a, a three day experiment where we gathered input from more than a thousand participants. And we gathered it in real time during a conference. And it was there's more than 7,000 sticky notes represented on this massive, massive mural that really gets at what does this sector believe to be true about the future? What do they hope for on the dream side? What are they afraid of on the fear side? And what does this mean in the center in terms of commitments that need to be made so that we know when we're falling victim to fear, and when we're acting out of shaping what we want to be true. It was a really powerful exercise. One of the things that we learned through those three days as we navigated helping the the entire sector get behind the fact that they actually are the actors that are shaping what's going to happen in the future, each of us in our everyday action at work, is shaping whether we're pursuing the dream or falling victim to the fear. Was that there needs to be a way to have better conversations. So out of this activity, we actually had a film crew with us. We created a 12-minute documentary that you can find on challengefactory.ca under our national conversation. If you uh, if you are interested in what this process looks like in a massive scale, um, but we also created a do-it-yourself conversation guide uh, that takes you through what are the good questions. And even inside, it gives you examples of what a flip chart might look like if you want to be kind of illustrative like the mural was, but you don't have any artistic talent. How could you take your team through a series of three conversations that actually gets out on the table? What are people hopeful for and fearful of? What does this mean in terms of the five drivers? And then what do you want to do in terms of shaping your own company or organization's future? your industry, your sector's future, your country's future? How can this inform better strategy? So that conversation guide is also available at challengefactory.ca.
0: Amazing, and uh, you know, I, I love how it's, it's very important and how strategically these conversations and these discussions and these talks really help move the agenda forward. They help bring interesting points to the forefront and actually bring all the thought leaders, all the different schools of thought together in one place. But I often feel that, you know, all this talk doesn't lead to a lot of on ground change or action, because if we just look at the last 20, 30 years, you know, Internet has been around for a long time now. And remote work is still not a reality in the sense that it's not commonplace. So what's really stopping us? And what are these, what are the ways to actually influence a change? So if if there are change makers out there, if there are definitely uh, individuals and organizations who would like to influence the actions of their companies, their managers, their teams. What can be done? Is there anything to you could share with us on something on the lines of, uh, is there an action plan? Are there best practices? What can be done to influence this change on, on, in reality?
1: Yeah, so oftentimes, like as you say, we've been talking about it for a really long time, but it hasn't happened. And so you have to think why. I mean, as an entrepreneur, to me, there's a, you know a kind of decision point on that. Is it because it isn't a real thing and there's no opportunity or because there's barriers that haven't been put on the table or expressed in a way that they can actually be addressed so that they are no longer barriers and then we can move forward. And so in in my assessment, it's the latter. It's not that there isn't the opportunity. It's just that we haven't really done a good job of, um, of honouring the barriers that come up, that when people are resistant or negative about the process, they get labelled as uh, being... Um, you know, resistant to change or not progressive, uh, you know, it's only new companies that are able to do this, they know, all of this kind of narrative around who's able to actually navigate into this, which isn't actually based on fact at all. All that it means is that people that are used to working in a different way have barriers and needs that need to be addressed in before they're willing to risk the business, the success, the team, It's risky to change the way that you do things. And it's risky for a reason. It's because there's good experience that's been built up that keeps us functioning and doing things well the way things are now. So getting to a good action plan isn't actually about listing the steps that we need to take in order to be able to move our workforce to being remote. Everybody can do that. So, you know, coming up with better steps for how to move your company remotely isn't necessarily going to lead to change. The, the two things that I would say are the biggest impact levers and the way that you actually move your organization forward is to, first of all, listen for the yeah buts, listen for where people are raising the objections, and recognize that, All that a yeah, but is, is a need that hasn't been expressed. And so if you can take every objection that comes your way and flip it from the perspective of the person that's expressing it and say, I need, and then identify what it is that they need in order to feel like not just that it's safe to move to remote work, but it's better to move to remote work, you'll be able to have identified exactly what needs to happen Not so that you can accomplish the physical act of working remotely, but of breaking down the mental barrier. So that flipping the yeah, but into a need statement, I think is really, really important as a way to be able to move people forward. And then the second tip that I would say is rather than starting to focus on the tasks, once you get to that list of tasks and you've identified all of the different needs, the next question shouldn't be, so what tasks do we need to do? The next question should be, do we have the resources in order to knock the tasks out of the park? So if you look at your task list and you don't have the buy-in, the money, the technology, the process steps, if, you, if there's a resource, human, capital, technological, you know, in any of the, the categories of resource that you can think of, if there's a resource that you're missing doesn't matter how hard you tackle a task, it's going to be more frustrating, take more time, and be harder to accomplish your goal. So flip the yeah buts into needs, take the needs and list the tasks, and then tackle not the tasks, but the resources to be successful in accomplishing the tasks. And that will unblock a lot of the strategic thinking that's going on in organizations.
0: Thanks, Lisa. Those are some really interesting points. And I'll uh, just quickly recap. So make sure that you attack the mental barriers first, because it's more important to influence people and to change how they think about remote work as a practice. And secondly, focus less on the tasks and more on the resources required. So if you have the right resources, you can get everything done. So those two very important points on how you can move ahead from now onwards. Great. That's right. uh, this was really insightful, uh, Lisa. Thank you so much. And uh, I just want to wrap up quickly with uh, so if there's if there's any tip that you can offer to us just, you know, for organizations or individuals who have been forced into this emergency work from home situation because of the COVID crisis, uh, what can they do to deal with the situation? Any tips or t- uh, tricks for them for the next couple of months to get through the situation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, really just recognizing that we are in the midst of a crisis and you don't have to get it perfect. It has to be good enough. And that's good enough at the moment. I think if you need to make an error in being overly cautious in any particular area, it's in the relationships that you have and maintain. In times of crisis we tend to get very focused on tasks and especially when we're not face-to-face like we usually are. If you're not working remotely, making sure that you're taking time as a leader to pay attention to the relationships and the well-being of your team even more than you necessarily would have when you were face-to-face, I think is really important. And the third thing that I would say is, you know, every crisis has an arc. There's a moment in time when you're actually in the midst of the crisis and it is appropriate to be focusing on addressing the needs right now in the moment to be able to survive the crisis. And at some point in time, a balance also has to be met where you start to look to the future. So we don't need to be in the full recovery in order to be preparing for recovery. And I think thinking through what criteria are you going to look for that tells you it's the right time for your thinking to shift from crisis to recovery planning, that's a very helpful activity so that you know what are you looking for that tells you it's now time to move forward. Uh, And those criteria will be different for everybody in every different geography. But it's helpful in advance to think of what is the criteria? What am I looking for? So that when it happens, you know that it's time to move and you actually move yourself forward.
0: Very interesting advice. Thank you so much again, Lisa, for that. And um, if you don't mind, I'll just uh, move on to a couple of personal questions. We can do a rapid fire lightning round. Sure. Great. Uh, is, is there a favorite book that you have that you can probably refer to us?
1: So my favorite book from a culture and a business perspective is Tribal Leadership. And uh, it's it's a book that's been out for quite a while. It's available on audiobook. It talks about stages of culture and it's equally applicable whether people are face-to-face or remote. It has amazing tools that really focus on the humanity in the workplace. So that's my, that's my recommendation.
0: Tribal Leadership is it? Gotcha. Thank you. Uh, And is there a role model that you personally follow?
1: So especially in these times, the role model that I follow is a Canadian astronaut who spent a lot of time alone up in space. Uh, Chris Hadfield, he's inspirational. Uh, He's also very active on social media. He has amazing messages for business leaders as well as children on how to deal with isolation and prepare for what comes next, still be productive. So I would say Chris Hadfield is a good Canadian for you to check out and follow, uh, especially at these times.
0: Great, I'm definitely gonna look him up. Perfect. And um, is, is there any uh, is is there any piece of advice that you can offer on terms of uh, so so there are plenty of myths about around remote work. There are a lot of misconceptions that people have about remote work. So is there a particular myth that can probably just bust for us today and you can say, you know, this is definitely not true?
1: I, I think the biggest myth about remote work is that remote work is exactly the same you just change the location. Because it's not. I think there are things that become possible when you are remote that are not possible when you are in an office environment. And I think there are things that are harder when you are remote. and so. Just looking at it from a geographic, I've changed locations perspective, is um, that's like what we've done now in the crisis. So I think the, you know, the key tip there is to really think about why is remote better or why could remote be better? What does it unlock and how does that, what are the resources that then need to support that better version before you jump into making a decision about remote or not remote?
0: Absolutely. It's not just about doing the same work that you do doing with the same process, but just do it from home. It's going to be very different. It has to be accounted for. It has to be planned for. It has to be appropriately addressed. So there are different challenges there and it has to be uh, you know, thought of clearly. So thank you, okay. uh, Lisa, for that. And uh, if someone wants to reach out to you, if one of the attendees or some of the attendees want to reach out to you, what's the best way to connect?
1: Yeah. So I'm on Twitter. My handle is at change paths. And uh, at the website as well, you can find my contact information, challengefactory.ca.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Lisa. This was really insightful. And uh, once again, thank you so much for joining us on the summit.
1: My pleasure.